word of God fulfills in, around, before, after, and through these sinful and sinless, daring and deceitful people, the very reality God himself has promised. And we can't detach these events or these promises from the two questions Genesis again and again presses upon us. Who will bring the kingdom blessing? Who will get the kingdom blessing? Indeed, if you look at verses 19 to 21, the introduction to the story shines these questions before our eyes like Christmas lights on a roof on a dark winter night. Look at verses 19 to 21. Generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac took Rebekah. Isaac prayed to the Lord because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer and then Rebekah, his wife, conceived. All these details, at this point, if we were reading through Genesis as a church, all these details should seem familiar. These are the generations of. It's a chapter title. The, the next part of the story has to do with the line of Isaac. The names, Abraham, Isaac, the problem, the barren wife. And the response, the Lord's act in the impossible conception. We've seen them before. We just heard about them last week in the birth of Isaac. We know the pattern and we should know what it means. The Lord has promised to bring his kingdom blessing through his son. The Lord has promised that his people will most certainly get the kingdom blessing in his son. And through these patterns of promised birth in Genesis and beyond, think about the pattern, Seth from Abel's death, Noah from the curse's pain, Isaac from Abraham's decrepit body and Sarah's barren womb. And now Jacob, the Lord is declaring through these patterns of birth, life from death, that salvation belongs to him. He wants to teach us, to free us from our idolatry of self, from our faith in ourselves, that we can do it. He wants to teach us that he will bring the blessing that he will ensure his people get the blessing, that he will do in his son what no man can do for himself. God will do it. He will atone for sin. He will demolish death. He will conquer the curse. He will bring the blessing. He is the one who will make all things new. And here the pattern is again in Genesis 25, 19 to 21. Who is this God? Who, who is this God that has written the story in this way? He's the one who creates in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the one who wipes it all out in Genesis 6 to 9. He's the one who gives life, and yes, the one who takes it away. He's the one we'll learn later in the narrative who shuts the barren womb and opens it. He is the Holy the sovereign God, the one who sits ceaselessly upon heaven's glorious throne. So what does Isaac do with that? He prays. He prays to the sovereign Lord, asking him to do what only he can do. Open Rebekah's womb and bring his blessing through a promised son. For the sufferer, this is why the doctrine of God's sovereignty fuels hope and not despair. If salvation depends on us, if God's promises 
rest ultimately upon our shoulders. If blessing comes only by our hand, then what hope do we have? You can't raise the dead. You can't do anything about a blind man or a deaf man or a spiritually dead man. If salvation depended on us, then sin would sever the promises. Death would demolish the blessing. Suffering would silence salvation. But our God is the sovereign God, the one who raises the dead, who creates out of nothing, who brings forth a boy from a long, empty womb. Therefore, when his promise hits a barren womb, or an unbelieving heart, when the curse cuts off blessing, we lift our hearts in hope to the sovereign Lord, who alone has the power and the authority to ensure that what he promises most certainly comes to pass. Church, that's why the prayer meeting that happened this morning is one of the most important things we do together as a congregation. Gather together. And pray to the sovereign Lord that his gospel might go forth in response to our prayers. Isaac prays, the sovereign Lord acts, Rebecca conceives, the blessing will come. It's the same pattern we saw in Isaac's birth, isn't it? But then look at verse 22. Suddenly, something's a little bit different. Look at verse 22, the pattern breaks. Something new happens and Rebecca feels it in her womb. She doesn't feel the fluttering kicks and the rolling elbows of a single son, but look at verse 22. She feels the, the, the harsh kicks, the thrown elbows of a wrestling match with sons, plural, in her womb. And so just as Isaac prayed, Rebecca knows what to do. She seeks no earthly explanation, no ultrasound to reveal, no midwife to diagnose. Those things are good under normal circumstances, but this is a birth of promise. When it comes to understanding what the Lord is doing in history, in creation, in fulfillment of his promise, we must seek wisdom in one place, from the Lord in his word. And in verse 23, the Lord answers her. He reveals, look at verse 23, what he has decided. He makes known what he has decreed. He unveils whom he has chosen. The war promised in Genesis 3.15. Remember? The enmity between Eve's son and the serpent's seed has spread all over, even to Rebekah's womb. Look at what God says. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be divided. And one people will be stronger than the other. And the greater or the older shall serve the lesser. In other words, the two sons belong to two lines, like Cain and Abel, like Ishmael and Isaac. Two distinct and unmatched nations struggle within her. Eve's son, Abraham's offspring, sharing the same womb as the serpent's seed. But the unexpected revelation comes in the final line. God has chosen the younger, not the older, the weaker, not the stronger, the lesser, not the greater. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The older shall serve the younger. Who will bring the blessing? 
Who is the promised son? The unexpected one. God chose the smaller one as his champion, the weaker one as his king, the lesser one for his salvation. Why? Why Jacob and not Esau? There can be no human explanation. Same parents. Same act of conception. Look at verse 24. They're twins. The same womb at the same time. And before Jacob had done anything good, before Esau had ever sinned, God set his love on Jacob and his seed to teach us that salvation belongs to the Lord and depends not on man, but on his mercy. Who will bring the blessing? The unexpected son. Who will get the blessing? His undeserving seed. Because salvation belongs to the Lord and depends on his mercy. And isn't that good news this morning? We're about to see it in this narrative And frankly, we know it in our lives that if our salvation depends ultimately upon us, upon how much we want it, or how hard we work for it, or even how zealously we believe it, then none of us would get the blessing, and none of us would be saved. The unexpected son brings it, his undeserving seed will get it, and so look at verse 24. Rebecca's pregnancy reaches term, and behold, twins Just as God said, it's the first fulfillment of the verse 23 promise. The older Esau is born healthy and hairy. The younger Jacob comes next, seizing, grabbing his brother's heel. Who grabs heels? Who strikes heels in Genesis? The serpent. Genesis 3, right? Jacob is described doing the very thing that, that Satan's seed would be described, was, was promised to do. Who will bring the blessing? Who will get the blessing? God has chosen Jacob, this unexpected son, this serpent-like man. But as the birth happens, here's the key question. Will God's choice prevail? Because even as this birth story grows, look at verse 27 to 28. With these two boys, it seems less and less likely that the younger son will bring the blessing or even get it. Look at verse 27. Esau becomes a skilled hunter, mastering the wild like a warrior king. And what is Jacob? Quiet man who lives in tents. Look at verse 28. Isaac, don't forget, Isaac is the one who's going to pass on the blessing. Who does Isaac love? Isaac loves Esau, not Jacob. How can this weaker son prevail? And even if he does, what will be done with his serpent-like nature? Here's the thing we've got to understand about the book of Genesis. When God decrees something in Genesis, it always comes to pass. Let there be light. God. There is no light. It's all darkness. Boom. Light. That's God's decree. That's the power of God's word. Israel's history in the Old Testament, in Genesis, isn't a history ultimately of just events that happen. It's a history of how God, by his word, drives forward the story. How God's word creates what it promises. And so just as surely as God's decree brought forth light out of darkness in Genesis 1, 
His merciful choice will determine which son gets and brings the blessing. That's going to be unpacked for us in two narratives. If you look at your Bible, in Genesis 25, 29 to 34, we're going to get this narrative about the birthright. Jacob tricking Esau and getting the rights and status of the firstborn. And then, 27.1 to 28.9, we're going to get this narrative about the blessing. Many of you know this story. Isaac intends to bless Esau. Rebecca overhears it. She tells Jacob, dress up like your brother. Take, his, take the food he's supposed to bring to your father, your blind father. And Isaac ends up blessing Jacob. Even though he thinks he's blessing Esau, he ends up blessing Jacob instead of Esau. And the fact that we're supposed to bring these two stories together, the birthright and the blessing, is shown right there in Genesis 28, verse, sorry, 27, verses 33 to 36. Let me just read the conclusion. Genesis 23, sorry, Genesis 27, 33 to 36. Turn your Bible, look there with me. After Isaac realizes, oh my gosh, horrified horror, I blessed Jacob and I thought I was blessing Esau. Pick up the story in verse 33. Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully. He's taken away your blessing. And then here's the link. We, we know we're supposed to link these two stories, birthright and blessing, because Esau himself does. Listen to this. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Three sections are going to structure Genesis 25, 29 to 28, 9. In 25, 29 to 34... Jacob, the younger son, gets the birthright. And then in chapter 26, we move from Jacob to Isaac. Isaac, the promised son, gets the promised blessing. Genesis 26 is showing us how the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Isaac's life. And then it all comes together in Genesis 27. Isaac, the promised son, brings the blessing. But unexpectedly, Jacob, the younger son, gets the blessing. And the verses we just read, verses 33 of, to 36 of chapter 27, capture in a few words what this whole narrative proclaims. In Isaac's horrified horror, that's how the, the Old Testament Hebrew describes it, a horrified horror. And Esau's embittered regret, we see, like when you're at the eye doctor and the, finally the proper lens clicks into place and you can see, we see how these stories fit together. The birthright and the blessing. Esau himself links them in chapter 27. In them we find not two random stories, not two educational histories, or merely moral lessons. These true narratives proclaim a great, a shocking, by human standards, reversal. They proclaim an unexpected salvation, a surprising but sure fulfillment of what God said in chapter 25, verse 23, the greater shall serve the lesser. God's choice, God's promise in this narrative 
determine what comes to pass. We'll, we won't read them all, but what we'll see is that Jacob deceives, Esau lusts, Rebekah plots, Isaac blindly blesses, but the word of God promised in chapter 25 determines what comes to pass. In, around, above, below, before, after, against, and through all their actions, thoughts, and intentions, God fulfills what God decreed. Because salvation comes not by human strength, because blessing depends not on what we deserve, or even foundationally on what we desire. Salvation belongs to the Lord and depends on his mercy. So the unexpected son will bring the blessing. His undeserving seed will get it. Let's take a, a brief look at the two narratives. The birthright, chapter 25. The blessing, chapter 27. Look at chapter 25 first. I'll read the whole narrative of the birthright. Look there with me. Open your Bibles. Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34. Give you a second to get there. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me right now. So he swore to him sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew. Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's a strange story. Genesis is a book of strange stories, but not when you understand how they fit into the structure and message. And the focus of this story, like a Christmas tree on Christmas morning, the focus of this story is that word right there, birthright. Birthright in Genesis 25, some of you oldest children will like this, but it's Genesis 25, I'm not saying it's applicable today. Birthright in Genesis 25 describes the rights and status that belong by nature to the firstborn son. As the oldest son, Esau was the natural and primary heir to Isaac's estate and blessing. By birth, he possessed the special honor and inheritance due to the firstborn. Naturally speaking, Esau deserves the blessing. You can see then why this natural birthright would cause us to look naturally to who? Not to Jacob, but to who? Esau. We expect him to be the promised son. We expect him and his seed to be the one to bring and get the blessing. And of course, if salvation depends ultimately upon man, Esau would get the blessing. Brothers and sisters, it's why Israel chose Saul, isn't it? When, when we live by what is possible for man, we choose what seems best to man. Esau's natural physique and disposition confirm our human expectation. As we meet him in this story, once again, he's the firstborn. He's loved by his father. He's a strong, king-like hunter. If I have to pick one of these brothers to be a king, I'm probably going to pick the one who goes out into the wilds with his weapons and tames them and has dominion. We meet him coming in from the wild. And then there's Jacob, the younger brother, beloved by his mother, a quiet tent dweller. And what is he doing? Stewing stew. 
But what happens next teaches us to trust, not in what confirms human expectations or aligns with man's wisdom, but in what God has promised. Esau's famished. Jacob's got stew. Those of you with more than one son know what's coming next. Esau, the stronger, older brother, makes a demand. Younger brother, little brother, give me some food. I'm hungry. Jacob, the snake-like heel grabber, sees the opportunity, strikes. Okay, let's make a deal. What's the deal? Look at verse 31. Sell me your birthright right now. Now, I'm not a businessman. I'm not a negotiator. I'm not a diplomat. But Jacob's pitch doesn't impress. We're not supposed to look at this as a a model of deceit or a model of business cunning. His deal's not compelling. We're not meant to marvel here at Jacob's craft. For the price of a bowl of stew, sell me your birthright. What kind of deal is that? Where Where did Jacob learn marketing? But Esau's a fool. There's no getting around that. Like the serpent, Jacob holds out food. Like Adam, Esau despises his inheritance, dishonors his father by selling it all for a satisfied mouth and a full belly and a bit of pleasure now. Some of you know that the author of Hebrews rightly warns us as Christians not to walk in Esau's way. Hebrews 12, 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. As the church, our God has given us in Christ the honor and inheritance due to Jesus as the firstborn of both the old and the new creation. What the author of Hebrews is saying is how foolish it would be for us then to deny Christ by giving all that away for the fleeting pleasures of sin now. Yet how prevalent among the church is pornography, the abuse of drink, abandoning Christ, even if just for a moment to avoid a little bit of pressure when our friends and family insist that we compromise a little bit on LGBTQ issues. Author of Hebrews rightly uses this passage to say, don't be like Esau, shouldn't be like Esau. We should heed the moral instruction that our shepherd gives. But even as we see the morality of this tale, we must not miss the larger meaning of this story. Genesis 25, 23 comes first. The older shall what? Serve the younger. Jacob deceives his brother. Esau despises his birthright. And God, in, around, before, after, and through, Jacob's deceit and Esau's folly fulfills exactly what he promised. His choice, not Jacob's cunning, exalts the younger son. His promise provides for Jacob already, even though he's an undeserving serpent-like seed. The birthright reversal demonstrates that salvation belongs to the Lord and depends not on how faith-filled Jacob is, but on the Lord's mercy. So the unexpected son gets the birthright. But this birthright is just a prophetic down payment. Just like when I'm coming home from an international flight, I call my family when I'm in the layover, right? If I'm coming from Nairobi, I'm in Paris, and as long as I'm not waking them up, I call my family. I say, I'm in Paris. 
and they don't say, why are you calling me? You're in Paris, not in Atlanta. They say, oh my goodness, praise God. That mean, if you've made it to Paris, that means you really are coming home. That's what the birthright story is supposed to function as. It's, it's not an end in itself. It's like God has brought Jacob to Paris, and now in the next story, he's going to bring him all the way home. The blessing in Genesis 27, 1 to chapter 28 is now going to recount the climactic reversal. Look at Genesis 27 with me. Genesis 27, 1. Follow along as we go through the verses. Keep your Bible open. Genesis 27, verses 1 to 4, look at it with me, sets the scene. Isaac is old. And don't miss this detail, Isaac is blind. Death approaches. It's time for Abraham's son to determine who will bring and who will get Abraham's blessing. And Isaac has a plan. He intends, I use that word intends intentionally there, he intends purposes for Esau, his great son, his beloved son, to both bring and to get Abraham's blessing. And so he tells Esau, maybe like some of you fathers would, would tell your sons, do what you do best. Get your hunting knife, your arrows, your bow, go hunt some game, make some food, bring it to me, and I'll make sure you and you alone Get the blessing. And I hope you see here in this narrative how Moses is setting two wills against each other. Not, I'm not talking primarily about Isaac and Rebekah. I'm talking about what the Lord has decreed and what Isaac has determined. Moses is forcing, forcing us to ask who ultimately determines who brings and who gets the blessing. Man or God. Genesis 25:23 The older shall serve the younger. That's what Yahweh determined. Genesis 27:4 Do all this Isaac commands Esau so that my soul will bless you. Who's going to get the blessing? Who's going to bring the blessing? God's choice or Isaac's? The answer is clear in the narrative that follows. Providentially, Rebecca overhears Isaac's plan. Just like Rahab, just like Jael, just like Naomi, and so many other fearless mothers of the faith, she plots a faith-filled plan rooted in what God had promised. Isaac is old and blind. Death approaches. It's time for Abraham's son to determine who will bring and who will get Abraham's blessing. And Rebekah has a plan. She intends for Jacob, her lesser son, her beloved son, to bring and to get the blessing. So look at verses 5 to 17. She tells Jacob, Listen to me, my son. Go get some goats. I've got your brother's clothes. I'll make some food. You'll bring it to dad. He'll think you're Esau, and you'll get Esau's blessing. And Jacob obeys, and Rebekah works. And then in verses 15 to 17, we get right to the, the climax of what's going to happen. Right? Look at verse 17. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of Jacob, her son. Who's going to bring the blessing? Who's going to get the blessing? Once again, we're not meant to marvel at Rebecca's craftiness and cunning. If this were a boxing match, look at the two corners. In one corner, we have Esau, 
manly and strong, loved by his blessing-bringing father, armed with a bow and arrows and a hunting knife, taming the wilds. That's a king by human standards. And in the other corner, we've got Jacob. He looks almost like a clown, doesn't he? Dressed up in his brother's clothes, goat skin fixed to his arms and his neck, loved by his mother who's powerless to bring the blessing, armed in his hand with bread and stew. It's not a fair fight. By human standard, it's over before it begins. That's how our world works, isn't it? The stronger survive. The powerful inherit. The wealthy win. Isn't that what American Christmas teaches us? As funny as Elf is, as funny as Santa Claus is, the nice, not the naughty, get the gifts. The festive, not the mourning. Get the holiday. The brightest, not the darkest, gets the prize. But like Goliath, such serpent-like math omits the equation's determinative factor. Genesis 25, 23. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The older, the greater, shall serve the lesser. In mercy the Lord has chosen. In power the Lord will save. Salvation belongs to the Lord and depends not on how strong we are, nor upon the place or order of our birth, but on his mercy. So the unexpected son brings the blessing, and his undeserving seed will get it. And as the narrative goes forth, Jacob executes Rebekah's plot. He deceives his dad. He gets the blessing. Look at verse 30, just in time. He's walking out of the tent just as Esau's arriving. It's meant to, to remind us God has ordered these events. It's not just verse 33, though. Look at the blessing in verses 28 to 29. What causes Isaac to bless Jacob in the way that he does? Look at it. What causes Isaac to bless Jacob? He smells Esau's clothes. Esau's smell reminds him, look at verse 28, of the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. You can't see it in English, but the Hebrew grammar puts a therefore right in front of the blessing that follows. Isaac's blessing flows from Esau's smell. Isaac smells Esau, whom he had chosen, and he blesses Jacob, whom the Lord had chosen. He blesses him in verses 28 to 29 with two blessings, dominion and dynasty, or kingship and inheritance. The whole earth, the obedience of the nations, would belong to Jacob and his seed. This is the kingdom blessing. This is salvation. Jacob and his seed will bring and get the eschatological blessing, new creation, future reign, salvation. And even after Isaac realizes what he had done, look at what he declares prophetically in verse 33. Yes. I know I blessed the wrong son, but yes. He, not you Esau, will be blessed. Who ultimately determines, who brings, who gets the kingdom blessing? Genesis 25 to 28 proclaims one answer. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. The one who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or what? Blind. Who made Isaac blind, that he might bless Jacob instead of Esau. 
The God who freely and mercifully blesses not the biggest, not the strongest, not those who deserve it, not those who are born into the right family, not those who have done the right things, not those who speak the right language. The God who freely and mercifully blesses whomever he desires. No matter what language they speak, no matter what family they're from, even if they're born in Gaza to a family of terrorists, no matter how wicked their sin or how deep the darkness goes, we have no right in our evangelism or in our planning for mission to limit God's mercy to who we think can be saved. That's why I hate the church growth movement. It's why it's so wicked. It's built on the premise that we as man should look at the, the analysis, look at the statistics and decide who in this region is most likely to get saved by human standards? Okay, we'll plant a church for them, for those most likely to get saved by human standards. This doctrine of God's mercy, that salvation depends on his mercy, demolishes such wicked and futile attempts. Who are we, brothers and sisters, to limit what God can do in mercy through the power of his gospel? Salvation belongs to the Lord, depends on his mercy, so the unexpected son brings the kingdom blessing, and his undeserving seed will get it. But Jacob's not the end. He's a prophetic picture of the promise. First time someone goes to Kenya, do you know what they ask them to do? Send us a picture so we know who to look for when we pick you from the airport. That's what this is. This isn't ultimately a story about Jacob. It's a picture of the coming one, the promised one. In Genesis, Abraham blesses Isaac. Isaac blesses Jacob. Jacob blesses Judah. But Genesis leaves us still searching for the saving son, still asking its questions. Who will bring the blessing? Who will get the blessing? And Genesis gives us some contours. He's going to be Eve's seed. He's going to be Abraham's offspring. He's going to be Isaac's lesser son. He's going to be Jacob's family and Judah's lion. And the details of this passage that we've just preached teach us that this promised son will be chosen by God, but unexpected by human standards. Weak, not strong. Humbled, not exalted when he first comes. And isn't this the true wonder of Christmas? We live in Augusta. There's not even snow to marvel at, brothers and sisters. The marvel of Christmas isn't lights on the house. It's not the movies we always watch. It's not even gathering with families. This is the wonder of Christmas. God became man to bring and to get the kingdom blessing. God became man, but Jacob's birth story teaches us that God didn't become the man we would expect. God became a poor man. And eventually, God became a dead man. How many of you go to the grave Go to the cemetery. Look, look for a grave that's, that's been uh, buried three days ago and are looking at that grave expecting that man to live, let alone expecting that man to bring blessing. God became a servant, not an emperor, a laborer, not a warrior, a lamb, not a lion, the crucified, not the conqueror, to teach us that salvation belongs to him and depends on his mercy. 
God became an infant son, born in weakness to his virgin mother, in need of clothes to warm him, arms to carry him, a mother's breast and milk to feed him. Born in darkness and in the shadow of death, he possessed no earthly inheritance. He could claim no human honor. A refugee in Egypt, a servant in Israel, a sufferer under Rome. He was armed for the conquest with only God's word and a Roman cross. Who would choose him as their champion? Isaiah 53, he had no majesty that we should notice him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. But just as surely as God's prenatal promise determined that Jacob, the unexpected son, would get the blessing, Genesis 25, 23, the older or the greater shall serve the younger, so too God's preconceived promise determined that this Jesus of Nazareth, God made man, would bring and get the kingdom blessing. Isn't that what the angel tells Mary in Luke 1? Behold, she hasn't even conceived yet. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And then here comes the promise of blessing. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Dominion and dynasty. And against what the Gentiles intended, and despite what the Jews planned when they gathered together in Jerusalem against God's holy servant Jesus, the crucified son brought the blessing, and the conquered champion got the kingdom. God in, around, before, after, and through Judas's treason, Rome's power, Peter's fear, Caiaphas's cruelty, and Jesus' perfect obedience and suffering unto death fulfills his promise. And against all that we would expect, he is now the ruler of all kings on the earth. He is now the blessed one and the blessing bringer. Just as the symbolic vision in Revelation 5 proclaims, John hears of Judah's lion, but what does he see? Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. Worthy to get blessing, worthy to bring blessing. Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The unexpected son brings the blessing. The suffering servant, the exalted king, the crucified and cursed now the conqueror and blessing bringer, the corpse becomes the giver of life. Bethlehem's overlooked infant has become all creation's glorified Lord. Why? Why has God written the story in this way? Why do Jacob and his undeserving family get the blessing? Why does Jesus bring it? Because the Bible ultimately is a revelation of the glory of our God in Christ. Because God is revealing his glory as the one and only one who saves, as the one who has mercy on whomever he will have mercy. And this glorious good news then brings us to the end. 
Who is the real Christmas blessing for? The kingdom blessing God first promised in Genesis. Eternal life, imperishable inheritance, kingdom reign. Is it for the strongest among us? Is it for the most religious among us? Is it for those who God knew would get their lives together? No, the blessing is for whomever God calls. The blessing is upon whomever God has mercy, overturning every human expectation, bursting every human limit and barrier. The blessing, therefore, is for whoever believes and all who seek refuge in this saving Son. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It depends on His mercy. So the true Christmas blessing is for the unexpected, the undeserving, those man would pass by, the sinner, the sufferer, the weak, the poor, the rejected, the reviled. Blessed are you, Jesus taught us, who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus taught us, who are hungry today, because you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jacob's birth story teaches us that the true Christmas blessing depends not on how much a child wants it or how hard parents work for it, but on God who saves whomever he will and who has mercy upon whomever he desires against all that man thinks and expects and demands. Let us pray. God, it is a wonder that we can pray to you. It is a wonder that the God in this